All right. Well, good evening, Temple. It's been it been a while since I've been here. Uh, I, I I already see already that there are some faces that I don't know and faces that don't know me. So I'll just go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Alex. Uh, I used to be a part of Temple for a very long time. I did my co-op here uh, back in grade 12, and now a part. I'm a part of Restoration with my family and Aaron and the rest of the crew, some of which are here tonight. Um, <laughs> Restoration represent, I guess. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been so awesome to see how faithful God has been to us as a church, as Pastor John already mentioned, and just his provision and in his growth of our church. And I'm so thankful for the prayers that you guys have, have given us. Um, and overall, it's just been such a great experience to be a part of. Um, if you don't know, I'm also a student at Heritage, just down the road at Heritage College and Seminary. Uh, and I've, I want to thank you again for, for praying for me and for supporting me in, in my journey there. And I've just learned so much there, even just this past year. And the friends I've made are amazing. Um, and I want to thank you one last time just for inviting me back out to speak, especially Pastor John for reaching out. Uh, I just want to thank you for, for having me here and giving me the opportunity to share what God's been laying on my heart and teaching me this year through his word. So if you have a Bible, we're going to get right into it. Psalm 130 will be our passage tonight. Uh, Psalm 130. Before, before I begin, though, I, I want to take us here on a little bit of a journey, if, if you'll allow me to. So I want you to put yourself in the shoes of, I want you to put, imagine yourself as a Jew around the time of the Old Testament. You don't really have a car to travel long distances quickly, nor air conditioning to keep you cool, nor really any of the other luxuries that the modern world has so graciously given us. Rather, you have a family consisting of your spouse and multiple children, and you have a journey that you are currently walking on. You've done this journey many times before, however, without as many kids. Uh, you, can, you can feel the unrelenting heat searing your skin, but it doesn't really matter because of what is about to happen. This time of year is one of the many festivals happening in Jerusalem. And so you and your family have decided to walk some, from your home somewhere in Israel and take the multiple day trek to Jerusalem. Really, it should be an exciting time of year for you. Expectation should fill the atmosphere. However, you are all tired, sweaty, hungry, and you are longing for some rest. It kind of sounds like me after a day at work. There are a million things on your mind. Where you're going to sleep, the closest well near to you, what you're going to eat for the upcoming day. But really, above everything, above all the excitement, above the, all the expectation, one question plagues your mind. And that question is, will you find hope? Will you find hope? You, you know that you've brought all the necessary things required for the temple sacrifices, but you still feel hopeless because you, you know that you've broken the law. And you know that if you break the law, you deserve to die in the presence of God because you stand guilty before him. And so you feel the feelings of dread and shame and hopelessness and doubt weigh upon your soul shoulders and the weight is increasing as you get closer and closer to the presence of God. You then arrive at the base of the hill leading up to Jerusalem 
And as you look up to see the city that, that stands or the city that is on top of the hill where the presence of God dwells, you, you hear one of your children begin singing a song. And it's a song that they've known since they were little. You taught it to them. And it's a song that we're going to read, Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You can see at the top of your Bibles, before, before that first verse, you, there's a title ascribed to this psalm. It says that it is called a song of ascents. Now, the songs of ascents are a collection of psalms that range from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the people who sang these songs primarily were, were pilgrims who made the journey from their home somewhere in Israel or somewhere within the surrounding nations and made that journey from their home to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping God. These songs were, they were particularly sung while they were climbing up the hill to get into the city. And, and really, apart from passing the time as they climbed up the hill, the, these pilgrims, they adopted these songs into their lives for the purpose of a reminder. These songs served as a reminder. You can see as, as you read through the Psalms, or especially the songs of ascent, that the theological statements made in, these, made in these songs were things that good Jews already should have known but have somehow forgot. They, they, the people singing these songs needed to be reminded of God's blessings for them in spite of their sin, and they needed to be reoriented around that reality so they could have hope that God was still their God. And really, really, this is our scenario as well. We, as people, are forgetful by nature. I know that uh, I work at, if you don't know, I work at Farm Boy, uh, just on Hesler Road there. It's, it's a good time working there. And sometimes um, when my parents have a busy, busy Saturday, they'll ask me to uh, pick up some groceries for them because I'm a nice son, so I do those kinds of things. <laughs> and... Uh, I know that a couple weeks ago, my mom asked me to do that, and I did, because again, I'm a good son. <laughs> and we unpacked all the groceries. I got home, we unpacked them all. And then as soon as we finished unpacking them, my mom says, Alex, you forgot the Chicago-style popcorn. Now, 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 just to clarify here, if you know our family, if you know my dad especially, he loves Chicago-style popcorn. It's his favorite kind of popcorn in the world. Essentially, all it is is just cheese and caramel-coated popcorn. It's pretty good. Um, and and pro this is probably the most important thing on my list, and I somehow forget it. Even though my mom sent it to me on my phone, and I know that my dad loves this popcorn, I somehow forgot it. 
Now, now the crisis was averted because my dad picked up the popcorn on his way home, but the point is that I forgot. Even though I knew everything, I forgot it. And really, it's the same with God. I know I've quoted him before, but Paul Tripp, he has this wonderful quote. He says, In the busyness and self-centeredness of our lives, we sadly forget how much our lives have been blessed by and radically redirected by the generosity of God. The fact that he blesses us when we deserve nothing except for wrath and punishment fades from our memories like a song whose lyrics we once knew but now cannot recall. And really, this is, it's not like people in Israel didn't feel this reality. It's not like they didn't experience this as well. Forgetting God for some reason is a common experience for the people of God. People in Israel, they knew that they were prone to wander quickly away from God if, if they weren't reminded of him, even if he did the miracle of miracles right in front of their eyes. I mean, if you really want a good case study of that, I'd really encourage you to read the book of Judges and just see how quickly God's people go totally out of control only one generation after he fulfills his promise to them to bring them into the land he promised Abraham. It's really quite fascinating. So, so knowing how quickly they were prone to forget God because of the brokenness in the world and in themselves, they, they turned to the songs of ascent to, to remind themselves that, that God was still their God and to remind themselves of God and his blessings for them. And, and so the main emphasis of our passage tonight is that even though we forget God and, and try to face the world on our own, there is hope for us. There is hope for us, especially as we read verses five through eight. But, but the psalmist wants to make it clear that, that this hope that we have as the people of God is not, is not just out there. It's not exclusive from anything. It is grounded in another reality. Hope is not light or fluffy. It's not abstract or ethereal or meaningless. You know, we, we tend to talk of hope as this abstract concept almost. Like we'll hear phrases like hope in God or just have hope, but we don't really know what they mean or, or how we can know we have this thing called hope. It's like when you, when you hear a word a million times, you kind of lose its meaning. It's basically what we've done with the word hope. We don't really know what it means anymore. However, in, in our passage tonight, hope is not an abstract thing. It is not light or fluffy or meaningless. It is, it is real, it is made full by, and it is grounded by another reality. And that reality is God's forgiveness. The, the point is this. The reminder that, that the psalmist is trying to get across to us tonight is that because of God's unimaginable forgiveness, we can have unshakable hope. Because of God's unimaginable forgiveness, we can have unshakable hope. And we're going to see that reality come alive tonight. But I want to warn you, like, like the psalm, like the psalm purpose of the songs of ascent 
a lot of the things that I'm going to say you may already know but have somehow forgotten. And so I want to try to remind you of how amazing God's forgiveness is and how confident our hope is. I want us to look at forgiveness and hope with fresh eyes tonight. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk back through this passage verse by verse, and then we're going to explain what it means. We're going to figure out how this, what this means for us, and then we're going to take a step back, and we're going to apply it to our lives. So look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You can see that in most of your Bibles, the psalm is, is broken up into four stanzas of poetry. And when we look at that first stanza, it doesn't really look all that hopeful. The writer says that he's crying out of the depths in verse one. That the Hebrew word for, for depths is translated elsewhere in the Psalms, almost as if the person writing is at the bottom of the ocean and he's calling out to somebody on top to help him. It's basically like he's drowning. The one we hear crying in this song is broken, is hopeless, and is begging for some help. This, he also realizes, though, that, that God is the only one who can help him. He cries to God to hear his voice, to hear the voice of his pleas for mercy in verse 2. And when, when we look at this, we're not really sure why the person feels the way he does. We're not sure why he feels so hopeless. But as we read on, we, we see that the reason why the person, this person feels so hopeless is because of his sin. If you look at verse 3 with me, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sin, O Lord, who could stand? We, we'll get to that verse later on, but but we, what we can see is that his struggle, the fact that he's losing hope is because of the fact that he understands how holy God is and he also recognizes how sinful he is. When, when I read the passage for the first time, when I, was, when I was going through and trying to figure out what passage uh, God was leading me to, to preach on this night, I was really struck by how, how much this person was affected by the fact that they sinned, that, that they committed a crime against God. They were, they were so acutely aware of how God's perfection and them unable to meet that standard made them unworthy and it caused them grief. And I'll, I'll be the last one to speak on this, but I wonder how many of us actually grieve over our sin. Or, or just push it aside as no big deal. I wonder if the reason so many of us struggle with besetting or habitual or, or repeating sins is because we don't really see how devastating it is to, our, to ourselves and to others and ultimately to our relationship with God. Now, we could, we could go to a number of examples in the Bible or in our lives, I'm sure, but I want to take the common example of pride. Now, I'll have to confess this. Every day when I wake up in the morning, by the Spirit of God, I have to crucify my pride. So I'm not going to say any of this like I'm lording it over you, but I'm going to say this as someone who's a fellow struggler in this regard. 
So for example, let's say that you or I have committed the sin of pride. It looks, it looks different in each of our lives, I'm sure, but we've all had those moments where it felt good to take the credit and not give it to God. It was easier to put someone down for some sort of gain or some feeling of self-satisfaction rather than to humbly serve them like Jesus would. What, what you do and what I do and what we do when we take pride apart from what God has done, when we take the credit and not give it to God, when we refuse to serve others and instead push them down and elevate ourselves, what we do is we refuse to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus in our lives. And rather, instead, we set up a counterfeit throne in his place and put ourselves on that throne. And, and from that throne, from that spot of false authority, the real injustice happens. It, it's where we start hypocritically judging others. It's where we start justifying our pet sins. It's where we start seeing our friends and family as means to an end rather than loving them as the end. And really, what the psalmist, the reason why I'm spending time on this is that in order for the full weight of this message to hit us, we have to, we have to see the horribleness of sin, how much ruin it brings to our lives. What the psalmist is expressing in the first two verses because of this psalm is hopelessness because of that ruin. The person sees the ashes of his life burn because of his sin and he loses hope. It's like that example of pride. That, that famous proverb, Proverbs 16, 8, pride goes before destruction. The end of pride is absolute ruin with our lonesome selves on our counterfeit thrones, surrounded by the, by the ashes of all the bridges we've burned. You can see the decline of the psalmist in verses one and two, and he sees his life losing hope. It's like, it's like dissolving in his hands and slipping like sand between his fingers. We, we can see, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Oh Lord, hear my voice. He's basically telling God what to do at this point. He's that desperate. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And you can see his decline. He's drowning, he's drowning, and then he hits the bottom. And when you hit the bottom, when you reach the end of yourself, it is there that everything else fades away that you, that all the things that you filled your life to distract you from your real issues go away like that. And that spot is the clearest view. It's where you got the clearest view of who you really are. And is also where you get the clearest view of who God really is. And we can see this in verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Oh Lord, who, who could stand? Really, it's as if a moment of realization has washed over the psalmist. In the midst of his hopelessness, all of his other worries wash away in light of verse three. He, he's asking God the question that determines all other questions. If you, God, should mark iniquities, God, who could stand? 
Now, that Hebrew word mark, the, the word mark in Hebrew almost has this image of, of a scribe writing something down or recording something on a scroll. And, and also that, that phrase, who could stand, it has this judicial imagery. So it's almost as if a prisoner is standing before a judge receiving a sentence. Now, to the, the question itself really is supposed to be rhetorical because the psalmist is expecting the answer that no one would be able to stand. None of us here are enough in of ourselves. Every single day we, we say a word, we have a thought or do something that says that God isn't our treasure. And that is what sin is. And because we have sinned, we should not be able to stand before God who is perfect and just and holy. We, we read verses like Romans 3.23, which say that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have failed. We all have messed up our lives. To illustrate this, I want to take that back to the image of that word mark in Hebrew. It's almost like someone's writing something down. I want you to imagine that every single sinful word, sinful thought, sinful deed that you and I have ever done was written down on a piece of paper. I know for me, that paper would probably go on for miles and miles on end. Every single time that you got angry or impatient with somebody, every single time you said a demeaning word to somebody and caused a tear in the relationship, every single time you looked at somebody with lust. Imagine if all those moments, all those sinful moments you had were written down on a piece of paper. Now, I want you to imagine further that this list, this list of all your sins was handed to God. Now, now I'm, we all know that, that God, God already knows everything that you and I have ever done. So for the sake of the illustration, I want to bring this to a courtroom setting. You have been caught in the act of a crime, and as damning evidence, as the smoking gun, the prosecuting team hands the judge, God, the list of every bad thing you've ever done. Imagine the horror of knowing that you have been caught and there is no way out. Imagine the, with a sly smile on his face, the prosecuting attorney handing over that list to the judge, God. As you're looking down, trying to avoid eye contact, the judge looks at you and he asks you, what do you have to say for yourself? You avoid answering the question because really you don't have anything to say for yourself. You know you're guilty and you know you should receive the full weight of the punishment due against you. Really, really, that is what verse three is saying. No one should be able to stand. Every one of us here, including you and I, stands guilty and deserves the full weight of the punishment due against them. And so the person writing this psalm has that realization that not only has sin absolutely ruined his life, but that because of it, he has offended God and must be punished for it. And maybe you're here tonight and you're in that spot. You realize how much sin has ruined your life. 
and you realize that you don't deserve anything from God. I'll just say that's the most hopeless you can get, probably. Knowing, Knowing that you've ruined your life and knowing that you've offended God and knowing that you deserve punishment, that, that's a weight on, on some people's shoulders tonight. So I ask the question, ask all of us the question. If God had a record of your sins, if God had a list of every sinful thing you've ever done, would you be able to stand? And the answer to that, because it's a rhetorical question, is no. And so what hope do we have? What hope is there when we are dead in the grave, dead in sin, and should have no hope at all? Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm I'm here to tell you today that the most fundamental and greatest hope we have is that God forgives. Praise praise God he forgives. The way out of your hopelessness tonight is forgiveness. The reason that you and I can be brought back to life is the forgiveness of God. The hope that you and I have at the very worst moments of our lives when we have failed repeatedly and over and over again is the hope of forgiveness. In light of all of this, in light of the fact that I deserve punishment and I have ruined my life because of my sin, I want you to look at verse four with me. Look at verse four. But even though I've screwed up my life, even though I I deserve punishment, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So so I want you to bring yourself back to that courtroom for a minute. The list has been handed over to God, the judge, and now he is about to sentence you. The prosecuting team is leaping and dancing for joy because of what is about to happen. Right at the last moment, before the judge sentences you, you, he stops. And he looks at you with tender eyes full of kindness and declares to you that you are forgiven. Feel feel the weight of the guilt you once had lift off your shoulders. See the shame flee at the pronouncement of that declaration. See that list of your sins, the list of all your sins, which are many. See that list be ripped to shreds by the judge and thrown away. The debt has been paid. Your record of sin has been canceled and the case against you is closed. Hear the judge's words. You are free because I say so. Verse verse four, I don't know. That's just absolutely astounding to me. If that is not the heart of the gospel, I don't really know what is. We, We as Christians can appreciate that and appreciate that fact, but, but good-thinking Jews would have an issue with that. You see, if God lets you go free, even though you've committed numerous crimes and sins against them, how does that mesh with the fact that God is just and he must punish sin? 
Jews and people singing this song would have looked to the sacrificial system of their day for, for a sign of God's forgiveness. But really, that, that system was only ever meant to be a temporary means that pointed to the glorious once-for-all end of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I could spend just the rest of our night plumbing the depths of how amazing that is. We could all go home singing the praises of God right there. But we also need to see that not only does God forgive us, as amazing as that is, not only does he remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, he also invites us to fear him. Look at verse four again. But with you, there is forgiveness. Why does God forgive? Why, God, do you forgive people like me? He forgives so that you may be feared. When we think of the fear of God, we don't usually relate it to God bringing us near or forgiving us. We have this dichotomy, especially, especially I, I notice in my life, that, that between the intimacy we can have with God because he's our father and, and the holy awe and reverence we are to have towards God because he's the king of the universe. A lot of the times, because of this, we'll either see God as too light on sin so that we abuse the grace of God, which Romans 6 says is not cool, but we also, but we also will see God as too far, as too demanding, as too distant, as too demanding and not really loving. And so we push ourselves away from God and wonder if he could ever love us. But here's the thing. Verse four, or really the whole Bible for that matter, does not contain that distinction. That, that distinction that we've made up is man-made. Verse four is very clear that God forgives us for the very purpose of making us fear him. I, I, I like to put it this way. God brings you close by forgiveness and he keeps you close by fear. Now, that sounds a little weird to us, but really, really, that's because we have a skewed definition of fear when it comes to fearing God. Fear is not being afraid of God as much as it is a holy awe of who he is. It is a response to outstanding, unimaginable forgiveness and grace. And so he brings us near by forgiving us. By, by canceling the debt we owed on the cross and by faith we're drawn near to him. And all we can do in response as we're wrapped in the arms of our father is look up with looks of near disbelief, with mouths gaping wide open. And like seeing the stars on a perfectly clear night, we stare in awe and wonder. Fear of God is not about being afraid of God as much as it is being in awe of who he is. And so how does that give us hope? Like I said at the beginning, the, the message of our psalm tonight is that because of God's unimaginable forgiveness, we can have unshakable hope. So, so how does God's amazing, unimaginable forgiveness give us this kind of hope? Look at verses five through eight with me. Verses five through eight. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we see five times in four verses that that the response to this outstanding forgiveness by God is to hope in him and in his promise of forgiveness. But how exactly does that kind of hope become ours through God's forgiveness? We can see that the psalmist wants to make it apparent to hope in God. He's, he's trying to be very clear about that. It's almost like he's telling us that we can have confident, unshakable hope. But how do we get that? How do we know we can have that? Now, through my study of this passage, through meditating on it and, and consulting the rest of the Bible, I've come to the conclusion, and you can test this, the way that God's unimaginable forgiveness gives us unshakable hope is that God's forgiveness shows us that he is faithful to us. God's forgiveness shows us that he is faithful to us. We can see this in in verse five. The psalmist says, in his word, I hope. Now, in this context, he's not talking about the word of God in terms of the Bible, but rather it's that word of forgiveness spoken to him. And In the days of the temple, after you gave the atoning sacrifice for your sin, the priest would speak a word of forgiveness, almost as if because he was acting on behalf of God. And like we've discussed earlier, forgiveness is a part of God's nature. And so so this psalmist is, is appealing to God's very character, to, to his promise of forgiveness, which God can never contradict. And he's placing his hope that he will have that sure and full forgiveness. For us today, we can have that same hope. The difference is that we have a better word spoken to us, better word of forgiveness spoken to us. Instead of the temporary, repeated sacrifices of the temple, we have the once-for-all, perfect sacrifice of Jesus, as Hebrews 10 points out. And so the promise for us is that if we trust in Christ and ask for forgiveness with a heart of faith, he will give it to us no matter what, because he is faithful to his promises. And so the psalmist illustrates God's faithfulness by using the image of watchmen waiting for the morning. Now, now back then, back then there had to be a night watch to protect cities like Jerusalem from attack uh, at night by the enemy. And really, if you could imagine, you'd be pretty tired. Not only was it the dead of night, but you were always on guard in case an enemy would try to attack the city. You're expecting morning to come. You want morning to come so bad, you almost begin to doubt whether or not the sun will rise again. And then after a long night, the sky begins to light up. 
over the eastern horizon, you can see a sliver of light over the mountains. And then day breaks, and the world comes alive with light. And in the same way, we all have seasons in our lives where it is pitch black night. We want the sun, we want hope to come quickly because it feels like we're losing it. And it feels like forever until it does. This passage tells us that we can have hope that the sun will rise because it always does. And in the same yet even better way, God is always faithful to us. Though sun and stars and moon pass away, he will remain faithful to us forever. And I want to include this in here. This hope that we're talking about, it's not for for the super spiritual ultra-Christian who can see God in everything. This hope is for all of God's people, no matter what. The psalmist in in verse 7, he transitioned from calling himself to hope in God to, to calling on God's people to hope in him. And he does that because This hope that we have through forgiveness is not for some people who have their spirituality all together. It is for every one of us as the people of God. The psalmist expresses that truth of God's faithfulness to us. He expresses that truth in three ways. Firstly, in verse seven, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord gives the first reason. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is chesed. I learned that in Bible college, dropping some knowledge on you with, with the Hebrew, chesed. chesed which ref, it basically refers to God's covenant love to his people. Essentially that God is not going to stop loving those whom he has made a promise with, who's made a promise with who has made a promise sealed in blood. And for us as Christians, we know that blood is the blood of Christ. It seals God's promise of full forgiveness forever for us. And secondly, he says here that with God is plentiful redemption or abundant or full redemption. God is not a halfway God. He is not in the business of starting something and not finishing it. Rather, as it says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus. That is a promise. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he will redeem and deliver us fully when he comes again. Thirdly, it says in verse 8 that God will redeem Israel out of all his iniquities. It ends with a promise of hope and freedom. Like like God bringing the Israelites, purchasing, purchasing them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and bringing them into freedom, into the promised land. In the same way, God will purchase his people one day fully from sin forever. And now that promise of verse eight has been fulfilled in Christ. 
that God, God has purchased his people out of their slavery to sin. God has been faithful through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has purchased for himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation out of bondage to their sin and has made them free forever. And so I want to step back now. I know, I know we've covered this psalm now. And I want to apply what we've learned tonight. So whether it be sickness or death, whether it be inner turmoil, wondering if God's going to rescue you from a dark place of depression or anxiety, constant conflict with your spouse because of each other's sin, we all have those moments where it was hopeless. There was despair and it overwhelmed you and you didn't know what to do. There are even people right now struggling with that. I think worldwide of the Christians suffering persecution in, in Nigeria and Sri Lanka and even, even closer to home this afternoon with, with Ed Kuhn's funeral. I know we know that he is going to delight in Jesus forever now, but but doesn't mean the wounds will go away immediately. Despair often comes over us and we are overwhelmed by it. But if God has forgiven you, if God has cleared you of your sins and has removed the hopelessness of eternal death with the hope of eternal life, then we know that he is faithful to save. And if he is faithful in the greatest act that he could ever do in saving you and I, how much more will he be faithful in the trials of this life? John 16, 33, Jesus said that we will have trials or tribulations in this world, but life is not gonna be easy. It's gonna be filled with hopelessness and despair at some points. But he also said to take heart, to have hope because he has overcome the world. And it is true forever, I love this promise, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is true forever that he is near to us when we are brokenhearted, that he will restore us when we are faint, he will satisfy us when we are hungry and thirst for more of him. We can have hope in any situation, even in the depths of the grave, because he has shown himself faithful to his promises through his forgiveness. And so as I close, I ask, do you need hope tonight? Has life shaken you to your core and left you looking for solid ground to stand on? Are you, are you looking for a solution to the, to the despair you feel tonight? Brothers and sisters in Christ, first, firstly, if you don't know Christ, I'd encourage you to lay down your despair and hopelessness at the feet of Jesus, to, to receive his, ask for forgiveness. And I just said that he is faithful for, to forgive. If you trust Christ and ask with the heart of faith, you will receive forgiveness. That is a promise, yes and amen. 
and for us, for brothers and sisters in Christ. God has forgiven you of every sin that you and I have ever committed. And because he has shown himself faithful in forgiving you, you and I can have unshakable hope that he will fulfill every promise to us and that he will be with us forever. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our only hope. The world may point us to hope and temporary things, but you are the source of eternal hope. And we know that we can have hope in you because you have forgiven us. Help us now, O oh Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you and remind us in the moments when all seems lost that you have done the greatest thing in forgiving us by dying for us and rising again so that our hope is not dead, but it is alive. It is living. May we be in awe of who you are and may we hold fast to the one who is faithful, who forgives us, and who gives us hope. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.